10 years ago, there was a distinction between back-end and front-end developers. A back-end developer would be managing the business logic and database transactions using Ruby on Rails or Java. A front-end developer would be responsible for implementing designs and arranging buttons using raw HTML and JavaScript. Today, developers can build entire applications in JavaScript. Developers who spend their early career developing front-end JavaScript skills are finding themselves with a surprising amount of power, with Node.js providing a back-end framework and React, Vue, or Angular on the front-end a single JavaScript developer can write all the code for a whole application, hence the rise of the full-stack developer. At the same time, the cloud infrastructure that we use is becoming much easier. Backend as a service, like Firebase or Netlify, simplifies the frustrations of deploying your application and standing up a database. GraphQL improves the relationship between the front-end and the back-end. And futuristic technologies like WebAssembly and Web Virtual Reality are promising to make a JavaScript engineer's life even more interesting. Adam Conrad is an engineer and a writer for Software Engineering Daily. In some fantastic recent articles, he has documented the changing nature of the front-end, including JavaScript engines, virtual reality, and how mature corporations are using React and GraphQL. He joins the show to share his perspective on what is changing in the front end, and how full-stack JavaScript engineers can position themselves for future success in a quickly changing market. We are running a listener survey to find out what we're doing wrong and what we could improve on, and what you like about the show. You can fill out that survey by going to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey. You can also sign up for our newsletter at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash newsletter. And if you want to work with us or be perhaps a writer like Adam Conrad, you can check out softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs or softwareengineeringdaily.com slash write. With that, let's get on with this episode. Adam Conrad, you are a principal software engineer at Indigo, and you're a writer for Software Engineering Daily. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you've been writing some articles, and I thought we would just do a show discussing some of the topics you've been writing about and studying. And the first area is front-end engineering as it relates to React. So React.js has been around for three, four years at this point. And front-end engineering changed pretty significantly with React. There was finally consolidation around a front-end framework where there was previously a lot of fragmentation. What did React get right? I would say the first thing they got right was having Facebook as their backer. So most frameworks don't get a lot of promotion and support because they're developed by individuals. And so having Facebook back React made it a contender against an earlier framework like Angular. So that was the first thing I think they got right. I would say the next thing that was really significant in React's trajectory was in the fact that it was component-based. With Angular, it was very focused on bringing the whole thing to the front end. And what I mean by the whole thing is if you look at something like 
Ruby on Rails. Ruby on Rails is a web framework that's very soup to nuts. It includes an ORM, it includes things for views and templates, and it includes a way for managing routes and controllers. So Angular took that idea and decided to bring that to the front end. But the problem was that it was very overloaded. I think the way that people want to develop on the front end has shifted from being something very fully fledged, like Angular or Ember, into something a lot more lightweight and component-based. So the fact that React was lightweight from the beginning and focused only on the components made it very appealing to front-end engineers. Was there something about Vue that took ideas that were popularized by React and accentuated them or doubled down on them? So I think the big thing with Vue, which actually that's uh, an amazing example of a single developer who did manage to get very popular in spite of not having corporate backing. So that would probably be the one exception to the others where you can get by and have a successful project without necessarily having corporate backing. I would say the to answer your question about Vue, I think I've only used it very briefly for a client project a few years ago. But what I saw as valuable for Vue is that it has the ease of use of interacting with HTML the way that Angular did. JSX is still kind of quirky, and I'm not exactly... And you will find people who may not agree that JSX is the most natural way to interact between HTML and JavaScript. But Vue is a nice kind of blend between lightweight component frameworks and something that is easy to manipulate the way that Angular directives made it easy to manipulate HTML well, with JavaScript. Now, you were saying that the pivotal idea of React or the, or the most important selling point was perhaps the fact that it was backed by Facebook and Facebook was able to provide consistent development to it. It was also able to provide a consistent playground because Facebook is perhaps, or at least at one point, it was the most complex web application. And so React coming out of that is a pretty strong sign of this this front-end framework actually does suit the needs of the most complex web application out there, and it's performant. How does the Vue community and the Vue development world contrast with that of React? I would say the biggest thing that Vue got right in that contrast was that they started very, very lightweight and simple. If you look at how Angular started out, it was very bloated, and it included everything. And that was a pretty large project. React also, in terms of payload, is a very large project, which is why there were others like Preact that came out that were lighter weight versions of things like React. Vue, on the other hand, was building from the ground up, didn't base itself on any previous framework, and was lightweight from the very beginning. It was also very easy to use. The documentation for Vue is excellent. And so it makes it very easy for new developers to get onboarded onto Vue pretty quickly. But you do bring up a good point that another important piece of React success was in corporate buy-in, right? And so one of the biggest things in evaluating a framework is, is this used in production? Are big companies doubling down on these frameworks? Angular, the fault with Angular was that they weren't really using Angular all that much with Google and Google products, but... Facebook was already using React internally before they did it publicly. So by having that corporate backing and saying, we stand by this, we use this on our own applications, made people feel very comfortable that this is something they can use in their production applications. So that was more of a hurdle that Vue had to overcome, and that's why they focused 
on excellent documentation and making it easy to ramp up with Vue. Speaking of corporate adoption, Airbnb was one of the first companies to adopt React Native in a big-scale use case, and we've covered this in, well, both both you and I have covered this, the story of React Native at Airbnb. Obviously, React Native is different than React, but it's a project that's closely related. So you wrote an article about React Native at Airbnb that's on Software Engineering Daily. What stood out for you about that case study of React Native at Airbnb? I think the biggest thing that stood out for me was the fact that React Native doesn't actually support too much of the advanced feature sets from either iOS or Android. I sort of came into it not really having developed much React Native, but thinking, okay, they're going to port a lot of what's available on these devices into React components so that you can use them in your projects. But after listening to the podcast and reading up on Airbnb's case study, I noticed that they couldn't actually use React Native for a lot of their more advanced features or even what seemingly seemed like rudimentary features like maps. Like they were saying that as soon as they had to do advanced features with maps or geolocation, they had to leave React Native and go directly to Objective-C code or Java code in iOS or Android. And so I sort of came up with the assumption that, okay, if they can use React Native, they can use their JavaScript developers. And they did, but they quickly found out that those JavaScript developers then had to start learning iOS and Android development anyway. So I was kind of surprised that it, how limited it actually is in production environments. What are the the front-end issues, whether we're talking about desktop web or mobile web or mobile apps, what are the front-end issues that a company the size of Airbnb encountered? Well, I can't speak to it recently. I haven't been in a company that large since I was at Microsoft about a decade ago, so I, I can't speak directly to what is happening right now, but I can infer from the issues that I've observed that the biggest thing is managing complexity. When you have a company that large, you don't just run one application. And one application is very easy to get your head around. It's a lot easier to just work with one application, one front end, one back end. But as soon as you are working with a microservices architecture, or you start working with multiple applications that may be running some of the same code, that complexity can be very difficult to manage. And I think that's going to continue to be an issue for Airbnb, for lots of companies, mainly because the front-end world is so fragmented right now. You're going to see so many articles coming out in the next year or two where people talking about how there's too much choice. There's too many things to wrestle about. And with all this choice means issues with security, with updating all these different packages and plugins. It's really hard to just grapple around, all right, I want to get this one thing done. Why is it that there are eight different ways to route an application? Why is it that there are eight different ways to just do deep copying of objects in JavaScript? I mean, if you look on NPM just for copying objects, you're going to get a lot of results. So that's a lot to have to wrangle with when you now have more than one application that has to manage all these dependencies. So, I mean, historically, the the world of software, as I understand, is as much of a historian about the world of software as I am, what I understand is that the world of software kind of fluctuates between this state of a paralysis of choice 
and a consolidation and then the consolidation gets a little too cozy and somebody disrupts it a little bit and then again it 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 spins out of control into the the paralysis of choice but what i think about is that theme of kind of going from consolidation to explosion of choice that cycle has developed in a time where i think the world of developers was smaller and i wonder if if the trend is just eventually towards a world where you do have this paralysis of choice because if i just look at you know the aws suite of services there is a bajillion ways to do things even after even like if we're talking about the back end world there's been consolidation around kubernetes sure but there is not consolidation around how to do a back end architecture these days there's such a variety of you know you can do put everything on kubernetes or do everything in a serverless fashion or use these container instances and you know even uh, you know, so quickly after there was this consolidation moment around kubernetes there is already this paralysis of choice do you think that the in the limit we're just asymptoting towards that that paralysis of choice or do you think that there is going to be another moment of consolidation. I think it happens in waves. And this is just my own personal experience. There are certain languages for some reason that just don't have this problem. Like Ruby on Rails is one that comes to mind. That's pretty much been the dominant framework for Ruby since Ruby 1X. So you've I've yet to find something that is better than Ruby on Rails. Some people use Sinatra, which is like a lighter weight version of Ruby on Rails. But even if you're changing architectures from a monolith to a component-based Rails architecture, people are still using Rails. Same thing with Python. Django is pretty much the dominant web framework. Some people use Flask. Some teams use, I think, it, I don't even know if Pylons is still used anymore. There, are, There's some variety in the Python world. But in general, you have maybe one or two frameworks. And we're starting to see that even with JavaScript. It's pretty much Angular, React, or Vue. But I think it comes in waves. You know, a prime example of this would be jQuery. So in the late 2000s, early 2010s, jQuery was the dominant library. There weren't even really frameworks at that point for JavaScript. But having jQuery as a plugin library was very influential in the development of the JavaScript language. So we wouldn't have things like query selector all if it wasn't for jQuery. And so trying to trying to do this in terms of having lots of choice is good because once we start to find out who the winners are of all that choice those are going to be the frameworks and the ideas that help move those languages forward so i wouldn't be surprised if react goes away in the next 5 years but what comes out of it is that web components actually become a thing so if react is the thing that drives forward change for HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. That's a good thing overall. And that's where the consolidation will come in where the standardization bodies will say, okay, these were good things to have. Let's adopt that into these primary languages. And then once that's adopted across industry, then more people will start to develop things on top of that. So then, right, so React goes away, web components rise, and then somebody finds a way to create a framework on top of web components, which is really great. And then that will start another wave of trends, depending on, you know, how that gets implemented into the standards bodies. So that's kind of my guess is how I'll see it forming in the future is that there's always going to be choice. There's always going to be variety. And it's going to form in waves depending on the trends that people are seeing, 
how they like developing software, and then using that to adopt to standards bodies so that we can develop better products, you know, year over year. What are web components? I remember we did a show about that a while ago, but I don't really remember too much detail about it. Just think of web components like XML. So with HTML, it's a standard set of tags that are adopted by the W3C standards body. XML is more flexible. It allows you to essentially define any kind of tag. Web components are similar in that you get to define your own tags in HTML. And with that comes along JavaScript so that you can create interactivity with those tags. So it's, it's a bit more robust than XML in terms of just being a document language. And it allows you to add some interactivity to those tags. And it's, it's meant to be a web standard. It just hasn't really reached that adoption point yet. And you think that could potentially supplant React? I think what React is doing right now is helping shape the way standards bodies are going to implement components at a standards level, right? Because, I mean, just look at the history of pretty much any language, especially JavaScript. Nothing really lasts more than five years. I mean, if you asked me in 2010, oh, is jQuery going to go away? You know, most people would say, oh, they couldn't imagine a world without jQuery. But, you know, it's 2018 and no one really uses jQuery as the bedrock of their JavaScript development. They might sprinkle it here and there, but it's not the main thing they're using to develop with. So in the same way, I don't see React being the main thing in five years, but I do think it's going to have so much influence on the way that we actually develop that I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the tenets of what makes React great are going to be put into the JavaScript or the HTML standard. Another case study that you and I both explored was the New York Times in their use of React. How did that usage of React at the New York Times, how did that contrast with what you saw at Airbnb? So I think the big thing there was that they have so many different services to manage. What you were talking about earlier with dealing with complexity, I think the New York Times is a great example of that because they have so many different data stores, right? As a publication network, they have to think about text, they have to think about pictures and video and lots of them. And they have very interactive parts of their site too. Airbnb is a pretty straightforward marketplace. You look at listings, you buy time at a listing, that's pretty much the main thing you do there. With the New York Times, it's a far different experience. Sometimes you're reading on your phone. Sometimes you're watching an interactive video on your desktop. They have a lot of different ways of interacting with their site that is not just like reading a newspaper. So managing all those different backends, managing all those different content experiences is a really complex system. And it is really great to see that GraphQL was such a useful use case for them. You know, I'm a big believer in right tool for the right job. GraphQL is a great case study from the New York Times because that's exactly what it's meant to do. It's meant to make a very simple interface for front-end developers to attach themselves to many different data stores. And that's exactly what New York Times has to do. So diving into that and understanding why they use Relay and Apollo was a really great way to see this is the way you handle right tool for the right job. So GraphQL is this system for unifying the data access, and it makes it simpler for front-end developers to issue complex queries, and then the back-end can federate those queries to 
the different backend data services, databases, and aggregate the query response to deliver it to the front end. And if I recall, Apollo is the client side component of GraphQL, and Relay is the server side component. Is that right? So Relay and Apollo are both GraphQL clients. So I always get that wrong. <laughs> okay, so what is what is the tool? Give me the GraphQL tool chain from the New York Times. Sure. So starting from the very bottom, like I said, if they have a picture, a video, some content article, it's stored in a database somewhere. And they have lots of databases that are storing all this different information for various reasons. They're going to have a CDN for their videos because it's easier and faster to access from there. They're going to have maybe you know, a Postgres database for the actual content of their articles or some sort of CRM. And so someone from the New York Times front end team is going to want to access all that stuff together because an article is definitely a composition of all those different things into one place. So they'll issue a query with the GraphQL language. So they'll say, pull me this query that has, you know, this title, this description, and this headline video. And so what's happening is, GraphQL uses Apollo as the client on the client side to say, all right, take this structured query and break it down into the JSON I need to fetch from the GraphQL server. So Apollo will break that down into something that is readable over the wire on HTTP. It will send that to the server. GraphQL as a server will then deconstruct all those pieces and say, okay, this headline, that comes from the CRM. This video URL, this comes from the video CDN. This headline picture, this comes from the picture CDN. And so GraphQL as the server will break those things apart, figure out which databases it needs to talk to, and grab information from there. And then the databases are just living on their own servers and getting regular SQL queries as they normally do. So GraphQL and Apollo are essentially the interface between the user wanting that information and the database wanting to respond to something that actually is SQL. We did a show a while ago with Prisma, and Prisma is a tool for, I believe, translating the query. If you get a GraphQL query from a client, it Prisma is an easy way of translating that GraphQL query into for example, a Postgres query or a, a MySQL query or a Mongo query. But basically, you have this federation of queries to do, and you don't want to write all those queries manually, so you so you want some tool to translate it. First of all, did I get that right? Is that the right? Is that what Prisma actually does? You know, to be honest, I haven't spent too much time with Prisma. I've mostly tackled Relay and Apollo. But you're right in the sense that what these tools do is take user input and translate that into the appropriate SQL queries for the the data store. So they'll say, all right, you're asking for this thing. Translate that into JSON so we can send that over the wire. And then GraphQL will say, oh, this is JSON. Cool. I'll turn this into SQL. So essentially all these Apollo clients are doing is making it dead simple to write what would be a SQL query, but instead is just a structured JSON object. Well, more broadly, how has GraphQL changed front-end development and the relationship between front-end and back-end developers? So I'd say the first thing it's done is it's largely removed the use for front-end to really care about writing SQL. So 
usually if you think about, say, two tables that you have to grab information from to display in a component, you'd have to think about, oh, all right, I need to join this thing. So if you're in Rails or you're in Django, you're thinking about table joins. Instead, you just think about, I just need this thing from this object and this thing from this object, and I don't really care how it gets mashed up together. I just want it to be one sort of glob of data that I get back from the server. So that's nice in the sense that you now don't necessarily have to worry about optimizing SQL queries, but you still have to worry about things like fragments. So with fragments, that's one way of optimizing your queries to cache certain pieces of your GraphQL response so that you are getting only what you need and you're not repeatedly calling the same things over and over again. So, you know, on the one hand, you're not worrying about lower level languages, but you still have to worry about things like performance and security. So uh, in that sense, we're just shifting responsibility from one language to the next. I think the other thing that it does is it breaks apart the notion that everything has to obey REST. So REST was sort of an older way of doing things. It's been popularized by things like Ruby on Rails. So with REST, it was essentially translating your model objects into the various HTTP codes for fetching or modifying data. And the way to do that was very, very strict. There were essentially seven different ways that you could read or write data. And if you were extreme adherent to the Rails rules of engagement with model objects, you would create really interesting controllers and and nested calls for trying to grab the right pieces of information. And it could get very complex, and it also seemed kind of contrived. There are just certain times where you want to join two tables together and make them look like they're one, even though they're stored differently in the database. And so the old way of doing things meant that you sort of have to work really closely with a backend developer to make the data work the way you want it to um, and display it properly. But with GraphQL, that largely goes away. You can now work with backend folks to essentially say, hey, I just need this data. If you can get it to me as fast as possible in any way that we can make it work, great. I don't really care about the structure. I don't really care about how it's stored in the database or even what database it's stored in. I just want to make sure that I can grab it. And so it gives front-end developers more freedom to express the data that they want to display. And it also gives backend developers more freedom to architect their applications in a way that best suits their architecture, best suits performance, and best suits the way that they want to organize their data. So I think it just really gives people more freedom to express themselves and express their code the way they want them to. Are there any other trends that are pushing people to adopt GraphQL? I think the trend of microservices has been a big push for this. With microservices, there's such a focus on small architectures that are all composed into you know one service or one platform. And so when you have that many smaller services that are isolated, you're going to have more data stored in many different places. And so GraphQL is great for tackling that. If you're dealing with a monolith application, may not be the best use, but if you're working in a microservices framework, which has become more popular over the last few years, GraphQL is definitely going to simplify things for you on the front end. So GraphQL and React, those are some higher level aspects of how front end has changed. And we've also done coverage of WebAssembly recently. WebAssembly will change front end programming, whether the developer 
is aware of it or not, whether the developer interacts with WebAssembly or not. Explain what WebAssembly is. So WebAssembly is a way for developers to not have to write JavaScript in order to get code out into a browser. And the way that it does that is it essentially takes code, breaks it down into extremely fast and performant JavaScript, and then runs that in the browser. It is this sort of middle bridge that turns what you might be developing on the desktop and turns that into something that you can run in the browser. So a perfect example of this is if you were developing games and you're developing them on your desktop, you can use WebAssembly to create a gaming experience in the browser without having to write all of it in JavaScript. I think you know, in order to dive into WebAssembly a little bit deeper, we can talk about the life cycle of JavaScript code as it executes in the browser, which uh, this was totally new to me when I started to look at WebAssembly a little bit. And then we did these shows on JavaScript engines. And then you wrote about this a little bit. And they're just, it turns out that the way that JavaScript executes in the browser is extremely complicated. Can you describe some details of the life cycle of how JavaScript executes in the browser? Sure. We'll, we'll try to make it not as complicated. I think a good way to think about it are just the idea that you have, really think about just a stack and a queue. Everything that happens in JavaScript is either a stack or a queue. So the stack is how you execute the main JavaScript code you write. When we say that JavaScript is a single-threaded application that runs synchronously, you're really thinking of that one stack that takes your functions and your variable assignments and it pushes them onto a stack. So as the machine is reading JavaScript code, it says, all right, what is this keyword? Oh, this is a keyword for a function? Cool, put that function on the stack. Oh, and there's some variables inside of that function? All right, put that variable assignment on the stack. And so you're building the stack up as you get deeper and deeper into the blocks of JavaScript code that you're writing. But then you're naturally thinking, okay, well, I don't just write synchronous code. There's things for async, promises exist. So how does that work? And so as we're building things onto the stack, if we find opportunities for asynchronous programming, like for example, we make a call to set timeout or we're doing promises, that's where the queue comes in. So if it finds one of these keywords and it's ready to start handling asynchronous code, it's going to take that call, it's then going to put it in the queue and it's gonna say, all right, when I'm done taking care of everything on my stack, I'm gonna start looking at the queue to see what asynchronous code can I process next. So even though it looks like things are asynchronous, You've spawned another thread to handle your promises or handle your set timeouts, but everything always happens on that stack, that one stack. So we've got the code that you're writing in the browser that gets run through the stack. So you push things on as you add more functions or blocks and you take things off as you execute that code. But now we've built up a queue of items that we have to process that have come from promises or timeouts or something that's asynchronous. You then take that off that queue and then push those functions onto the stack. So for example, with promises, everything is essentially a callback. So you run some code and then some other code happens and that's why they use the then keyword. Then execute some more code. When that then gets called, you then start using the stack all over again. 
So just like you would with regular synchronous code, we take that callback, we push that onto the stack, and then start performing all the actions on the stack as you normally would. And so really, if you just think about it with those two data structures, that's pretty much how JavaScript code runs. That's great detailed understanding that you've just displayed there. We should also touch on JavaScript engines, which are that have to do with garbage collection and hot code paths and basically making JavaScript that is going to run multiple times execute more quickly. Tell me what a JavaScript engine does. Sure. So the JavaScript engine is like the lower level piece of what's happening in that code lifecycle. So when I say that things go onto the stack and then they get executed, well, what does execution mean? And that's where the JavaScript engine comes in. There's lots of different kinds of JavaScript engines. If you're running something in the browser, you're probably running V8 is an engine that resides within Chrome. If you're running code in IE, which I hope you aren't, then you're running a JavaScript engine in Chakra. So that Chakra is going to be the JavaScript engine that is running in the background for that. And so, or if you're doing a desktop application, you're going to be running it in Node. And so what these engines do is they take that code and they break it down into smaller pieces so that the machine can run that code, right? Because with any kind of language, you have to turn what is human readable into something that is machine readable. And the JavaScript engine is the process of breaking down that code into something that is readable. And so the three steps for that are the parser, the interpreter, and the compiler. So the parser, and we can we should link to this in the show notes. I have a friend who actually wrote out how to actually do this in JavaScript in a few hundred lines. Uh, but effectively what happens is the parser will take keywords from your JavaScript code and it will say, okay, is this a special word here? Okay, that lets me know that this is the start of an expression, the start of a block, the end of a block. I'm performing some operation. I'm storing a variable, something like that. So those keywords let the language know something special is happening here. So that parser will then create a node in a tree, which then provides sort of a roadmap for how this code is going to be executed on the machine. So the parser effectively creates tokens to turn the human-readable code into sort of blocks of ideas about how the machine should run this code. The interpreter then turns this into a tree. So it's going to say, all right, now that I have all these special tokens and these special ideas here, I need to arrange them in such a way that this gets executed in the proper order and is dependent on the right properties. So the interpreter then interprets that parsing into something that the machine can read. And then it gets sent to the compiler, which then says, all right, now that we have this order of execution of these special tokens, I need you to execute this code on the machine. And that compiler will then take these special, everything that is now broken up into these tree pieces, it's going to execute them in a certain order. And it's going to take that code and say, all right, I don't know what any of this means. I'm a machine. I need this to be spoken to me in much simpler language. So we translate that into machine code. And we go over this more in the article into how that machine code is optimized. Sometimes it's very easy for the machine to understand what's going on. Sometimes it's not very easy. And sometimes it wants to optimize it even further. But effectively, that last step is basically saying, all right, now that we have this organized in the right order with the right keywords, tell me what I'm actually doing on the machine hardware. That runs 
executes the operations, and then everything gets sent back to your screen, and then you see the output of that operation. That was a lot. Uh, did that make any sense? <laughs> I felt like I was just... Yeah, yeah. It makes, ma- no, it makes sense. It, I think this kind of stuff is obviously hard to digest over a podcast, but it's. I think what's useful about doing podcasts about these subjects is the degree to which people can have multiple avenues for exploring them. So I think you know if somebody really wants to understand JavaScript engines in depth, then it's helpful to listen to a podcast and read an article about it. But more to the point, why does any of this have anything to do with WebAssembly if WebAssembly is about not writing JavaScript? So the idea is that there's this compile step, right, that has to get to the machine in order to execute your code. The truth is, it doesn't have to be from your JavaScript that you're writing in the browser. It could be from something on the desktop. Maybe you like writing Rust. Maybe you like writing Clojure. It shouldn't necessarily be the case that you have to write JavaScript to get dynamic functionality in the browser, in theory. And so I think what WebAssembly is attempting to do is say, it no longer matters what language you use to create interactivity in your browser. Instead, we're just going to go ahead and say, you know what? Use any language you want. We'll take care of compiling it down in a way that JavaScript, the JavaScript engine understands the code that you're executing. So is it mostly important for this ability to write code in a language that may not be JavaScript, or are there other benefits that WebAssembly will unlock and and to improve the applications that we have? So I think the big thing, and we're seeing this now with games, is that WebAssembly is letting us write performant code, and JavaScript isn't necessarily the best way to write performant code. So we've attempted that before with ASM.js, and that's basically like a very strict subset of the JavaScript language to write fast code that is highly optimized. But there are other languages that are better than that. Rust and C++ come to mind as languages that are very good at handling low-level systems programming. And for things like games, you're going to want that performance in order to have an enriching experience. And so WebAssembly is important in that it's going to allow us to create more enriching experiences that still perform well in the browser because the limits currently in JavaScript make it such that it's difficult to write these programs just in JavaScript. It's a lot better to write them in Rust, compile them down into highly optimized machine language such that JavaScript doesn't have to be the middleman to write something great in the browser. Have you looked at that WebAssembly on Ethereum stuff at all? I I have tried my best to stay away from blockchain stuff for the moment. <laughs> okay. All I right. am I don't know what the opposite of hodl is, but I am not that person. <laughs> right. Okay. Fair position. But speaking of games, you've written about VR and, you know, if you're I guess if you're if you're dodging Bitcoin these days, that gives you plenty of room to explore the other slightly overhyped technology or or maybe not overhyped maybe just takes a long time maybe similar to bitcoin in that fashion so you've written about vr do you use vr regularly yes if what i don't know what the hodl is for vr but i'm hodling big time on vr <laughs> you're hodling vr okay. i'm hodling big time on vr <laughs> i think vr is the future to be fair also i think blockchain is also a future but I don't think Bitcoin is it. And I don't think Ethereum is it. So this is my 30-second thing on, on all of that is that these are great technologies. 
I just don't think we found that use case that is going to be universally adopted yet. And that's the same with VR, honestly. We're not there yet with VR either. But that's sort of the cycle of a lot of big waves of technology shifts is that... But so, so, but with crypto, okay, the thing with crypto is like, I, you know, I've really tried to delve into this, not with the depth of like a crypto entrepreneur, but like I, I've, I've done a bunch of shows on it and I honestly, I'm like, I don't really know. I'm kind of, I'm okay saying, I honestly, I just, I don't, do not know. Maybe it's Bitcoin, maybe it's Ethereum, maybe it's anything, you know, some, something in the future, it's a futuristic one, but I don't really think it's one of these things where we can say, oh, just look at the past, like, this is just like Webvan, like, the first iteration of these technologies is clearly not going to work. I, I think it's kind of unprecedented. Do you have, like, do you have actually a framework around that, or is it more like a gut feel? So I, I don't know who coined this, but there's this whole life cycle of technologies. It's like a graph, and it talks about how the early there's early adopters, and then there's, like, the, the mass, mass adoption. There's this whole cycle of, like, there's a lot of early interest from early adopters and people who love tinkering with new technology. And then it kind of has this nadir where it dips down and everybody thinks it will never work. And then someone comes along with something that actually makes it universally adoptable. And then you see a great rise in that technology. I think a lot of pivotal technology goes through that. And I think blockchain will do that as well. And that's important distinction too. I'm not necessarily bullish on cryptocurrencies, but I do think blockchain as a technology is very smart. The idea of triple point accounting, I think is the real excellent piece of innovation that goes into all these things. So that's what I mean when I say that I don't necessarily think Bitcoin will work, but I think the idea of having a neutral third party and a universal ledger is a really smart idea. I just don't think we found that application of that technology that has that universal adoption metric yet. So, so, so you think it could be like the Amazon? They release some quantum database or something. It was, it was like a distributed ledger that is basically on Amazon. So instead of trust, so like the the thing, the, what you need a currency for is the currency incentivizes people to have that trust layer. So you you do need a currency for a for this kind of public blockchain but if you just say okay we're we're actually gonna we're not gonna trust the public we don't care about the public we're gonna trust aws then you can use amazon's new database technology so is that the is that the framing in which you're saying blockchain not bitcoin so one way to think about it is that anything where you have to keep public record on something that's the whole idea behind triple point accounting like right now we live in a world of double point accounting, which is where the bank has an idea of how much money you have and you have idea how much money you have. And there's no, there's no universal way of debating that. It's basically you versus the bank. With triple point accounting, you basically have one giant receipt of everything that's ever happened in that system that everyone can reference at any time. They just don't know who exactly traded what. They just know that in this pool of resources, we did X, Y, and Z. That could be abstracted to things that aren't necessarily currencies. I would imagine law would be useful for blockchain technology to have you know, a, a universal ledger of everything that happened in terms of laws changing or in terms of how people voted on things. So that's kind of why I'm not exactly thinking about it like cryptocurrencies or thinking about it like the Amazon example. I'm thinking about it in terms of what's a way to keep track of all the things we're doing as humans. And I think blockchain is a great way of making it easier to hold people accountable for the transactions they're performing. And I think that was the big reason why people clung to cryptocurrencies, because 
they felt disenfranchised by the way that the banks had handled themselves in 2008. And they wanted a way to say, no, we want to take responsibility for the way that we handle our money. And so I think that's why cryptocurrency was the first big thing to come out of blockchain. And that's why I also think that blockchain will stick around, but it may not necessarily manifest as Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. It may be some other cryptocurrency. It may be some other use of the ledger that isn't even related to economics. That could be something that people just go, oh, wow, how did we not live with this before? So that's kind of why I think of it one higher level of abstraction from cryptocurrencies and more about blockchain technology in general. Okay. Well, anyway, hodling VR. (laughs) Right. Yeah. VR is a much easier case for me to get behind. And it's one of those things, I had a friend tell me one time that he said that you can't really see the awesomeness of VR until you actually experience it. And I, and it completely, I believe that to my core. I was very much skeptical of VR. I was like, well, I really only see this being used for games. And the last time I did VR, I used like a Game Boy VR, which was from like oh, the 90s. <laughs> yeah. You mean virtual virtual boy. boy? Yeah, that was it, and it was like the red, the red. Yeah, thing. it was like it was like you were in Tron, but everything was red, and it really was. It was just like a projector screen. Like it wasn't. It's nothing like it is today. And so I was like, all right, I don't know if I'm so into this. And then I actually tried an Oculus, and I played this game where it's like you're in the Matrix. You literally like people are shooting at you, and every time slows down, and you grab bullets and you literally throw them back at them. I was like completely blown away. And then I played this game where you're rock climbing and I rock climb and I was like, ah, that's fine. And I get in and you're like thousands of feet above the ground and my body, like the hairs on the back of my neck stood up and I was, and I'm a very rational person. And I was like, what is going on? This doesn't make, wait, so it, so it's like you wear a VR headset while you're in a rock climbing gym. No, 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 no. You're in a rock climbing simulator game. I was just in a regular room, but but okay. that was the crazy part was I was in a regular room. I'm a rational person who knows I'm in a regular room. And yet my body is having this nervous reaction whenever I would look down and see that, you know, if I let go of my left hand, I'm falling thousands of feet. <laughs> right. So in my head, I'm like, this is fine. This is I'm in a room. I'm standing in a room. I can feel my feet on the ground. And yet I would instinctively like move my legs as if I were rock climbing when I was pulling my hands up in this game. Like it's, it's amazing how much VR can transform your life and put you in the scenario you're in. Even when you're thinking to yourself, I'm not in this subway car. I'm not on this mountaintop. I know I'm right here in a room and yet your body is totally tricked. And if you get in a really immersive experience, it just blew me away. And as soon as I did that, that's when I realized that VR in some form or fashion is going to transform the way that we live our lives. And I, and that's where I'm going to definitely hold and bet. I would bet my career on it. I mean, that's why I've started focusing on VR for side projects. It's why I started developing for it. I think if you're a UI developer or you're in the front end, that's the next major frontier because we've already conquered the desktop screen. We've already conquered the mobile screen. The next screen is your eyes. It's going to be what you're doing in your day-to-day life. It's the goggles you're going to be wearing. We're going to be augmenting our lives with these screens so that we don't have to hold them anymore. I wouldn't be surprised if in 20 years, our kids or our grandkids are looking at us going, why did you have this thing in your pocket? Why don't you just look at it with your eyes? So, you know, it's, and again, that's a very far future from now. And I think companies like Magic Leap are are the very first at handling augmented reality. But 
this is the best time as a developer to get involved is when it's booming and it's on its way up, not when it's already been mass adopted. So if you want to get on board, you know, and be someone on the forefront of a burgeoning technology, VR isn't going to go away. You know, with something like blockchain, and it's the last I'll say on this, is, you know, there have been negative consequences that come out of that. People have, you know, lost significant money and they've lost trust in how something like these technologies work. But I don't see those kind of negative downsides with VR. I mean, you know, you spend maybe $400 on a Rift and you play some games. Like that's not, that to me isn't like the end of the world scenario in terms of negatives that could come out of VR. If anything, I find it to be a more enriching experience and a way to help us engage even better with the world around us. Well, I think it's like, we don't even know how to confront the issues that we're having societally with smartphones. And I think there's some amount of fear around VR, even me, I'm like a techno, pretty much techno liberal, techno optimist kind of person. And I just, I've tried VR one time and it was just a really, one of these really stupid simulations where like you're wearing the headset and you like point and click and you move to a different point in the room. It's like really simple. I was like, oh no, this is too much for me. (laughs) (laughs) It was overwhelming to acknowledge it and to, to kind of get into the VR world would be, would be to to have to confront something that I was a little bit like, I'm not sure how to how to deal with this. So I'm just kind of like, I guess, just biding my time a little bit. But anyway, okay, so what is the developer experience like for VR these days? Because I do agree with you. I think this thing is here to stay. There's going to be more and more adoption. I don't know what that adoption curve is going to look like. But what is the developer experience like today? I think there's two major camps you see right now. There are the power user, hardcore VR developers who pretty much come from a gaming background. So there are frameworks like Unity 3D, and they are out there to push really immersive experiences on the desktop. So if you're developing for Oculus, if you're developing for HTC, you're developing effectively what is a 3D game. And you're using pretty heavy duty rendering engines and desktop software. And you're pretty much developing in C-sharp or Java. So sort of the more traditional desktop applications with a focus on graphics and 3D math. So if you're interested in that stuff, that's pretty much where VR is at right now. But if you're a front-end developer, there are ways to get around that. React 360 and A-Frame are the two major web platforms for developing 3D applications. And these are sort of like the next level abstraction on top of the 3D graphics engines. So you have something like 3JS, which is a 3D graphics library for handling 3D games in JavaScript. React and A-Frame are effectively built on top of those with the mindsets of the front-end developer. I've done demos in both A-Frame and React, and it's amazing how basically with a few lines of code, you can put a cube in front of your face and it actually looks 3D. So I think What's cool about these frameworks is that they have severely reduced down the barrier of entry for someone like a front-end developer to start getting involved in these things. I made a demo for a talk one time, and I think I wrote five lines of HTML. I didn't even write any JavaScript, and I had a Hello Immersive World application to demo people on their phones. And people were just blown away, and they were saying, wow, you know, how long did that take you to write? How much code is there? And I was like, well... I know this is going to sound embarrassing, but I wrote zero JavaScript for this. It was all based on the framework. And people were blown away. The fact that you could do so much with so little was amazing. So then think about what would happen if you actually started developing a real application. I mean, the sky's the limit 
for front-end development in VR. So it's definitely not something you have to have, you know, this academic graphics background and work at Pixar for 10 years as an animator in order to get involved in this kind of thing. You can be a front-end developer and start working with React 360 or A-Frame right now. So you're saying that the frameworks for dealing with VR are pretty high level and pretty approachable these days. Is there some reason why developers aren't going at it? I guess just because the adoption is not there? Like, what what is the the developer adoption like? Or what's the developer community of VR like these days? So I wrote about this recently, and I actually think it's a great time to be involved because it's still very weird. And what I mean by that is, if you remember developing HTML pages back in the 90s, people weren't making very finely polished websites to the point where there's this whole aesthetic of what a 90s website looks like. It has like a marquee object that has blinking text and it scrolls across the screen and there's a lot of cheesy looking animated GIFs. So, you know, there's an aesthetic that comes along with something like HTML from its heydays. And so I think that's the era we're in right now for VR. So there are communities right now like Super Medium that's based on a, a company the two guys that developed A-Frame from Mozilla started a company that is funded by Y Combinator, and they have a whole community called Supermedium, which lets you post all of your cool 3D VR interactive applications that are from the web. And so, yeah, they're, they're weird and they're quirky, but this is that time now where VR is about expression. It's not about serving some commercial use. And I think that's kind of how the web worked from the 90s into now. Very early on, the way that you access the web that we know today was you were on AOL 3.0 and you click the internet button and then you were like, okay, well, what do I do now? I don't even know what to type in because you had like a sports tab and you had a games tab and then you had the internet tab and you're like, okay, well, this is too much choice for me. I don't know what to do. But if you found a website, it was usually pretty weird. It was pretty interesting and it was a means of expression. Whereas now the web is just Every interface looks exactly the same. It's highly refined. It's meant to be about serving a purpose, getting you to buy something, getting you to do a transaction, getting you to exchange money, whatever it is. But in its early days, it was really fun and interesting and there were no rules. And that's why VR is awesome right now is because it's not at that mass adoption phase yet. It's still very weird. We haven't really found the real world applications for VR in terms of a business perspective outside of games. So you're finding that there's these people that are posting a lot of really creative stuff that doesn't necessarily serve a purpose, which may mean that you can't use it for work yet, but it also means that you can use it as a form of self-expression and help push the technology forward so that when it is useful to businesses, you not only have all the experience, but you have the expertise in understanding how this technology works and you've got a portfolio to back it up, even if it doesn't necessarily fit a business purpose. But, you know, I would argue that not everything has to fit a business purpose for technology to be interesting or useful to people. All right. Well, we've run the gamut of front-end technologies, or many of them at least. What are the other front-end technologies that you're excited about? Or are there any other technologies you're excited about? Wow. VR is definitely the one that I'm most interested in pivoting towards, especially because I focus on user interfaces in the front-end. So I think that's kind of like the next interface. I'm very much a fan of interdisciplinary work. So, you know, bioinformatics, I think is really interesting. There's a lot of work being done on the genome where I work at 
Indigo, like we're focused on ag tech. So integrating technology with agriculture. I mean, this is like a whole new world of technology that I didn't even think existed. And yet it's a multi-trillion dollar market. So there's all these ways of integrating technology now. It used to be the case that technology was a thing. It was a business was founded on just technology. And now technology has become so ubiquitous that it's in everything. And so now technology is an integration into every other business vertical. So the fact that we're seeing it complement so many other industries, that to me is really fascinating. Integration with other business verticals, I think is really, really cool. Um, I'm really interested in the psychology of technology. So, you know, one other thing that's really cool about VR was I saw this study about how they're using virtual reality technology to help people with phobias. So if you have a fear of heights, there are psychologists who will actually put you in a VR headset and put you in scenarios. It's called immersion therapy. And the idea is that you have to immerse yourself in your fear in order to get over it with increasing amounts of exposure. And so VR is a way to gently introduce your fears in a way that's controlled and easy to get out of. And so they're finding that VR is a way to actually help people get over their fears by putting them in a very safe environment to expose them to these issues. And so, you know, if you want to talk about real world applications in medicine or therapy, VR is great at that. But just the fact that it's not just a technology now, that it's actually cross-discipline with psychology and psychiatry, that I think is really, really cool. Just seeing how all these different industries and topics are blending technology is really, really cool. And everything has an interface. And so if you're a front-end developer, you can get involved with basically all of this because you have to have some way of interacting with that software. And so I think it's a great time to be a front-end developer. And I think it's a great time to explore front-end in a lot of different industries and verticals. Adam Conrad, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. And also, thanks for writing for Software Engineering Daily. I think you're a fantastic writer, and I look forward to doing more coverage with you. Ah, Thanks, Jeff. Have a good one, and happy holidays. Wow. Wow. 